So Jeff Dice is somebody who, ever since this project started, has shown me personally uh, great friendship and support. He flew me down to Mises U, uh, has been nothing but supportive. And uh, if I may say, I think, I think we've, we've almost... Uh, We've made Jeff have a stake in something that I think he might have written off a long time ago, and that warms my heart a little, because you don't see Jeff Dice at too many LP events, do you? But he's here. But he's here. And that's something, that is something I am extremely proud of. So give one more round of applause for Ron Paul's former chief of staff, president of the Mises Institute, Jeff Dice. Thank you, Michael. It's very kind of you. Uh, I asked Michael a couple days ago if I could have a night off from the necktie, and he acceded to this request. So, you know, it's true. Uh, the Mises Institute and the Libertarian Party have not always had the uh, best relationship or been the fastest of friends over the years. So, you might ask yourself, why am I here? I'm not a member of the Libertarian Party. To my knowledge, I'm not a member of the Mises Caucus. Honorary member. Michael wants a check for that. But nonetheless, <laughs> but the reason I'm here tonight, first and foremost, is because Michael asked me. And Michael's a friend of mine. And so when a friend asks you something, you generally want to do it. And when I think about Michael, I'm reminded of something that I, I know all of you have heard is that, you know, people's character and what they do in life is actually far more important than their professed political or economic beliefs. Do you agree? So, so I think Michael's a good egg. And, you know, the, the concept, the notion of a political party rooted in Misesian thought, you know, real liberalism and real economics, I, I got to admit, that has a, a lot of appeal. That has a lot of appeal, and that would be a hell of a thing if it could be done. But there's a problem. There's always a problem, isn't there? And the problem is there are thieves out there. There are language stealers. Okay, they're everywhere. 1946. George Orwell writes an essay called Politics and the English Language. Real short essay. I encourage you all to read it. It's online. Politics and the English Language. In 1946, George Orwell says, you know, politicians are using words <clears throat> in consciously dishonest ways. They're weaponizing them for their political goals. And this is so true today. So in 1946, in the midst of, of the Second World War, George Orwell says, you know, all these words that people throw around, like fascism has just become a word to sort of connote loosely things we don't like. And democracy or democratic, that's sort of become a catch-all term for things that are good and things that we do like. And that is so damn true today. I mean, that is just unbelievable that Orwell was writing that all the, all the way back in 1946. So what the language stealers do, and language is an institution like any other, so all the institutions in America are crumbling, schools, government, churches. Well, language is too. It's under attack. 
So what the language stealers do is they use words as weapons. And by doing so, they eliminate what words are for, what communication is for. And I, I suspect that most of you in this room consider yourselves to be in the persuasion business, right? That's what we like to think, we're in the persuasion business. Well, it gets harder and harder when words are used in consciously dishonest ways because words are one, not the only, but they're one important form of communication. So words are supposed to give us meaning. They're supposed to give us precision. They're supposed to give us variety, but they're supposed to give us understanding. They're supposed to give us cooperation. And a lot of people in this country with, I would consider bad political motivations are using them as weapons. And that's a problem. So it, you know, when we get a word like liberal or liberalism, and today that word could be used to describe the worldview of Ludwig von Mises or AOC <laughs> or Bill Crystal and the Lincoln Project or the Cato Institute or, or, or whatever, whoever claims the mantle of liberalism, this canon, when that word can be applied to describe all those worldviews, we have a problem. We have a meaningless word. And so I'll ask all of you, does that apply to the word libertarian? Libertarianism? Has it become a meaningless word? Defend language. It's one institution we should actually keep. So, for the benefit of people who are younger here today, and I'm going to venture, I may be the oldest person in this room, or close to it. Um, you know, when it feels like the world is unraveling and we've got what's going on with Israel and the Palestinians, we've got, we're out of gas in my home state of Alabama, and we've got all these problems, and, and we've, we just got done with this hellish election. It feels like the world is unraveling. Well, this actually isn't normal. This isn't the way it's supposed to be, okay? When I was a young person in the 80s and 90s, it wasn't this way. And I actually had a pretty optimistic feeling about the future of this country and my own future. So, you know, if you lose optimism, if you lose hope, then you, you're really lost. At that point, you're really lost because nothing can replace that, okay, first and foremost. And so we have this orgy of statism and interventionism and central banking. And yeah, it's, it's, it's tough times because, again, what a lot of people call a liberal century, the 20th century in the West, that's supposed to be a liberal triumph? I consider an illiberal disaster. I mean, what it, what, you know, what it, what it, what did elites give us in the, 20, in the 20th century? Well, they gave us two world wars. They gave us a so-called police action in, in Korea, a quagmire in Vietnam. Okay, today we have endless wars of choice in Iraq and Afghanistan. We're going to be in Afghanistan forever, like Korea, by the way. We're never leaving. Okay, we got the Fed. We got income taxes. We got the New Deal. We got the Great Society entitlements. We got a politicized and useless Supreme Court in terms of defending liberty. We got spying, surveillance. We got the loss of civil liberties. We got a foreign policy that is seemingly designed to make the whole world hate our guts. And it's all run by an oligarchy. And what do we call it? We call it democracy. Meaningless word. Orwell was right. So if you blame oligarchs or elites or the deep state, whatever term you want to use, if you blame them for ruining 
war and peace and diplomacy, if you blame them for ruining money, if you blame them for ruining banking, if you blame them for ruining medicine or education or religion, or most importantly, our sense of community and culture in this country, you know what they call you? They call you a populist. Okay, populist. But the cracks are showing. Michael Rechtenwald was right, the cracks are showing. And Anthony Samaroff was right. This isn't about policy, folks. At some level, this has to be about some sort of mutual understanding, tolerance. Not the BS kind you hear about tolerance, but actually rooted in social cooperation. There has to be sort of a believable story or narrative to it all. That starts with you. And when I say social cooperation, I mean markets and civil society. Mises was going to call human action social cooperation. That's how strongly he felt that economics was really in just another word for how we all get together without even knowing each other half the time. When you order something on Amazon, it's unbelievable how we all get together peaceably, okay, apart and aside from the state. So it starts with you. So if you were going to envision a political party that was rooted in, in Mises' thought, wow, that seems so far removed from what we've got. But nonetheless, we should at least know what Mises thought, right? And it's good that you call yourself the Mises Caucus because it's good to have a touchstone. It's good to have a North Star in your thinking because if you are engaged in politics without any sort of principles or any sort of founding uh, ideas and you're just going about your business to win willy-nilly ad hoc completely from a, a point of expediency, there's a word for that, and that, that kind of person is called a hack. <laughs> and I've heard libertarians call it a lot of things, ineffectual mostly, but I haven't heard them called hacks. So Mises gives us literally the blueprint. It's like a schematic diagram. He gives us the blueprint for what the Mises Caucus is trying to achieve in society, maybe not just in, in a political party, but in broader sense of society. He lays it all out. Everything the, the Mises Caucus aspires to, he gives us. He writes these two unbelievable books in the inner war years. He comes home from the, what they called the, then the Great War as a member of the Austro-Hungarian Army. He was actually a lot older than a lot of the troops he served with. He was an artillery officer. He comes back really, really, really hurt. Okay, back then they didn't have all these concepts of PTSD and everything, but I mean, this was a man who, who was very quiet and taciturn in his approach to life, but it affected him. Imagine being an artillery officer in those trenches. He comes back from World War I, what we call it now, and he writes two unbelievable books, actually three in the Inner Warriors, but he writes two unbelievable books for our purposes. One of them's called Nation, State, and Economy, which is about 1919. The other one's called Liberalism, which comes out in 1928. Unfortunately for us, they're in, in relatively short or translated from German into English. And so these books, you know, are just unbelievable because he tells us what liberalism really is. So if you don't want liberal to be a meaningless word, you have to go actually read somebody who knew what the hell he was talking about and what liberalism meant. So he says in this book, he says, if I could condense the entire program of liberalism into one word, it would be property. You know, what an unbelievable thing to write. And of course, 
that really triggers a lot of people because they don't like that, right? That's not their conception of a liberal society. But to be fair to him, he, he also says there's two very important co corollaries to property which are equally important, freedom and peace. Okay, so by freedom he means all the things we think about personally and all the things we think about in a, in a laissez-faire economy, but he also means peace because coming out of a hellish experience like he had, he knows that war is the absolute negation of social cooperation. It's what happened when human beings break down and stop dealing with each other rationally with words or markets or whatever they do. So for Mises, liberalism does include a recognition of nation states, but it's rooted in property. It's rooted in self-determination at home. So it actually requires laissez-faire at home and it requires free trade with neighbors. Because if you don't have free trade with neighbors, you, you have countries develop in, developing a sense of autarky, where they want to expand and have everything within their own borders, right? And this is certainly true of uh, Germany. So to avoid the tendency towards autarky, we need free trade with our neighbors. And of course, we need non-interventionist foreign policy to avoid the tendency toward war and empire. So very broadly, but not in not meaningless words, but broadly speaking, property, freedom, and peace. Okay? That's that's the liberal program. So we can only imagine, you know, what, what would the West look like today if these books had been read widely and taken seriously uh, a little more than a hundred years ago? What if they'd been read and absorbed at the time? Okay? If Western governments had been even somewhat reasonable in that century since over the past, maybe they consumed only 10 or 15% of private wealth in taxes. If they had maintained just reasonable currencies backed by gold, you know, mostly staying out of education and banking and medicine, leaving those things private, and most of all, just avoiding the kind of supranational wars which the Great War, World War I, should have taught them were hell on earth, if they had just done this, we might today still live in, in a really gilded age, like Mises' pre-war Vienna. Imagine that. Imagine living in a liberal country, but with all of the unimaginable benefits of today's technology and material advances and medicine. Imagine that. But here's the truth, folks, is that liberalism didn't hold. It didn't hold. We live in an illiberal society today. The West is illiberal. It didn't hold. We have to admit that to ourselves. It didn't hold in the West. It didn't hold anywhere else. And it never really took full root in the Misesian sense, and it never took root for long where it did. That's why we're all here today. I mean, if the world had listened to Mises even somewhat, if Western states had committed to sound money, markets, peace, I mean, libertarian or anarcho-capitalist thought it might have just been totally unnecessary. We might be grumbling about, you know, potholes and, and uh, down tree lines and city council meetings instead of seeing the state as this unbelievable existential threat to our civilization. But here we are. So the question is always at these kinds of events, what do we do? Where do we go? What's the path forward? And it's very, very murky because 
there are billions of people on the earth, and they all have different talents, as Anthony mentioned, and they all wake up every day, seven, eight billion people, and they all do all kinds of things, and they are oftentimes irrational, unpredictable, and even unlikable beings. But nonetheless, here we are, and we have to do something. So can any sense of Mises's liberalism, not the meaningless words kind, but Misesian liberalism, can that be reclaimed, if that's even the word? Is there a chance for that in the 21st century on, on this planet we're sharing? Yes, there is a chance for it, but there's a price. There's a big price you gotta pay. And the price you gotta pay, and Mises talked about this, <clears throat> is you have to give up universalism. You have to allow self-determination for everyone. Everyone. Okay? And that includes the Chinese, that includes the Israelis and the Palestinians, it includes everyone. So Mises wrote about this in Nation, State, and Economy. He said, you know, if we could, Excuse me, he wrote about this in liberalism. He said, if we could, we would have to acknowledge the right of self-determination and the right to break away down to, this, to, to you know, the smallest possible political units, towns and counties. And even theoretically, he said, Ludwig von Mises, no anarchist, by the way, a firm, small-D Democrat. And he was a firm, small-D Democrat because he thought democracy allowed for the peaceful transfer of political power within countries. And in the West, anyway, uh, that's been mostly true since he wrote that in the 20s. I mean, there have been civil wars in, in the Balkans, there have you know, been civil wars in Spain, et cetera. But for the most part, that was true when Mises wrote that, that, that democracy allows for the peaceful transfer of political power. But it's getting shaky, isn't it? This last time with Biden and Trump, that didn't feel like a peaceful transfer of political power to me. That felt like a shit show. <laughs> but the price you pay is self-determination for everyone, down to the, even the individual. And that's why I support things, and I have Spanish friends who tell me I'm crazy. I support things like the Catalonian secession movement. Um, and <laughs> You know what? They would probably be more left-wing than the Spaniards. And, and the, the Catalonian secession movement, we're not talking about, uh, you know, some backwater. We're talking about Barcelona, an absolute world capital. And you know what's so interesting about that uh, example? Is that there's the Barcelona football team. And you know how people in Europe really, I mean, they really identify with their team. And so the team colors of Barcelona's soccer team have become almost a proxy for the independence movement. In other words, people feel a sense of community around the football team, so they feel a sense of community around Catalon, Catalun, and, and that emanates out because that's who they are. They have a feeling of a nation, that they are Catalans, not Spaniards, okay? And we always think of nationalism as a bad thing, as something that is outward facing, that's aggressive, that's uh, you know, rooted in empires. But we can't deny 
people a sense of community or nation independent and apart from the state. So Mises talked about self-determination and he said, you know, by what measure do we judge the true God? Who's to say? And so I really think humility and not hubris ought to be at the core of our liberal program. Because certainly, look, there are universal normative principles found in libertarianism, especially natural law libertarianism, the kind that Aquinas talked about, the kind that Rothbard talked about, the kind that Judge Andrew Napolitano talks about. And in our conception, right, all human beings have a right to sovereignty over their physical bodies and minds, a right to justly acquire property, and to freely associate or dissociate with others. Okay? So we all think of those as universal. Self-ownership and property rights are really central tenets of our kind of liberalism. But here's the problem is that many parts of the world would disagree with this. They disagree with these tenets whether we admit it or not. You know, universal social norms, cultural attitudes, or policy prescriptions are a very tough sell beyond the West. What, you know, libertarians, we can universally condemn slavery or authoritarian collectivism or war. It's quite another thing to suggest how other societies ought to organize themselves politically. And by other societies, I mean, you know, Florida. <laughs> right? Please, Florida, give me a passport. I want to move to Florida. <laughs> and I could. I could move to Florida. But consistent universalism requires this idea that we tell other societies how to organize themselves. How can a universalist libertarian argue otherwise? You know, the fundamental problem with universalism is that so few things really are widely agreed upon. So I would say universalists exhibit a very illiberal form of hubris. One that smacks of, among other things, neo-colonialism, the insistence that others have to believe as we do. If we only show them the superior, obvious superiority of our thinking, they'll go along with it. But human beings not only fail to believe as we want them to oftentimes, they also fail to act as hope. And actions, of course, tend to be somewhat singular rather than group. So universalism, whether we're talking about political or economic or cultural, poses a problem. And it's actually collectivist in its own way and unworkable within any kind of praxeological framework. In other words, the, the, we consider ourselves individualists as opposed to collectivists. Well, what's universalism if not collectivism? I mean, even don't hurt people and don't take their stuff, you know, that varies according to cultural norms. We, you know, we would say, well, every culture ought, well, would necessarily and needfully have a prohibition against murder. I think that's true. I would agree with that statement. But even something like murder, there, there are concepts of honor culture in the past, and even today in other cultures, where they would say, well, you know, but there are certain times when we have to uh, uh, perhaps engage in um, retribution and murder, right, to, to honor our families or something. So it's not, you know, th there's no wisdom in pursuing political arrangements around the world or even especially even within the United States. It's a crazy idea to try to organize 330 million people under the thumb of what really amounts to just a few hundreds of people in Washington, D.C., at least ostensibly, right, in Congress and the Senate.
what, three, four, five people on the Supreme Court in any given case? So we have to have the exact same rules on abortion and guns, for example, in, in the middle of the wild in Alaska as we do in Manhattan? As libertarians, we have to tell Parisians that they should have uh, open carry? You know, guns, I have a French sister-in-law, I have a Parisian sister-in-law. Okay, gun culture just doesn't translate to her. She thinks it's crazy. She thinks it's crazy. And after the Bataclan killings, the nightclub in Paris where a, a band was playing, an, an American band, and a gunman went through, a couple of gunmen and went through, and they, you know, they had like three or five minutes totally unmolested before the police got there. And imagine three to five minutes, you know. I mean, imagine how long that must have felt to the people in there. And so the U.S. libertarian response was, they should have guns. Everyone should have pulled their guns out. Boom, boom, boom. You know, shoot it up. <laughs> right? But that's not the French way. I mean, try, trying to tell this to the French is not going to win you over. They don't want to have a gun culture. They just, they just don't. So whether they're the French or the Floridians or anybody else, I'll conclude with this. And, and Michael suggested we might have a few minutes for Q&A. That's up to y'all. But, but here's the thing. People don't listen to, they don't take political direction from, and they certainly don't vote for people who hate their guts. That's why Hillary Clinton lost. Okay, people sense that, look, this woman hates our guts. And that's all it takes. People vote tribally, they vote emotionally, they vote for people like them and not like those other people. And these are just political realities and they're hard to overcome. And I'm not someone to give Michael advice on how to overcome them because I don't really know. But that is the reality. And if you're going to be political, you ought to be good at being political. So at the end of the day, none of this is about public policy. It's about narratives. It's about telling a story. It's not about being libertarian. It's not even about libertarianism per se. It's just about moving the ball in the direction of a greater degree of political liberty. And in my opinion, increasingly, that means talking more about separation than persuasion. Thank you very much. There's a, a form of soft secession happening right now under our feet as a result of COVID. People are leaving the lockdown states. They're leaving the states where, you know, a two-bedroom bungalow costs 1.2 million. And they're, they're heading for, you know, more rational places. And so there's a, there's a sort of a gigantic self-segregation happening. And it's fascinating because I think it's a form of de facto secession. And I think you're gonna have more people starting to think of themselves as, well, I'm a Floridian, or I'm a Texan, or I'm a, a, a Californian. And, I, and you know, when, when people from Texas travel abroad and someone says, where are you from? They say Texas, right? They don't say United States. And I think that's a good and healthy thing. I think 330 million people is way too many. I, I think it's just way too many. 
it doesn't, you know, we, we could have, um, we could have angels in Congress and that you just can't handle that many diverse interests. I don't think rationally. So first and foremost, I think the goal needs to be splitting up. And whatever, that, whatever form that takes, uh, so be it. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. All right, let's get a bigger round of applause than that for Jeff Dice. Come on. <laughs>